Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Father, our ears want to be attuned to, to what you would say to us, and our hearts receptive. And so I call out, Lord, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that you would accompany the truth of your word with your great power to bring it to our hearts and to reorient and recalibrate and change how we think and feel so that we can live lives that bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week we began to um, wrestle with this passage, and um, as you can see, he was, Paul was addressing uh, the situation which was very normal at the time in, in Ephesus, which was obviously part of the greater Roman Empire city in uh, what is modern-day Turkey, in which in a congregation like this, um, a large number of the folk there, a huge percentage, would have been slaves, and a number of them would have been wealthy masters. And of course, this institution had been um, part of the Roman Empire and was part of the kind of fabric and the bricks and mortar of it, as it were, of society. And we, we were thinking then about a little bit, to begin with, about how it is that Paul doesn't seem to directly challenge the institution, but rather he, he speaks um, truths. Whenever he's speaking about slavery in any of his letters, he, he begins to sow seeds which ultimately bear fruit over centuries in the downfall of the institution itself, but never opposing it in a direct way, calling for revolt or the overthrowing of the institution itself. And what you then see is a kind of peaceful dismantling of slavery in time within, within the empire. And it's an extraordinary thing to understand how that operated. And so given the fact that slavery, certainly in this form, doesn't exist here in our present context, how are we meant to read this? And what we were thinking about was the way in which Paul addresses his teaching here to those who are bond or free. In other words, he's laying down principles here for all of us and their principles for how we should think about our work. That work that you spend so much of your life engaged with is not something distinct from or separate from your faith, but rather something that you are you are seeking to do for the glory of Jesus, that you are, in a sense, incarnating Christ in your service of others with your sincerity of heart as an act of worship back to Jesus with the promise of reward. And that when a Christian understands this teaching about Christ's interest in your labor, his interest in your duty to um, earn a paycheck or to fulfill your obligations and responsibilities, that he is watchful of these things and the way in which you do it, a Christian has an extraordinary motivation to be worshipful and excellent in what they do for the glory of King Jesus. And that was what we were interested in last week. But now our attention needs to turn to the other side of this, which is that Paul, you notice at the end here, he begins to address the masters in that congregation. And I want to begin to speak to you this evening on the theme of the redemption of power, how the gospel redeems 
power. Now, evidently, none of you in this room could be described with this term of being masters or lords in the way that these men and women were for their, in their households. But you will all possess power to varying degrees at different times in your life. Every person has a measure of power. Some of that power is formal. It's gifted to you when you receive promotions or you're put in positions of leadership in organizations or institutions. Uh, Some of it is formal in the sense of you have power within the structure of the family. If you become a parent, there's a measure of power that you possess in that relationship, and that's normal, and that's healthy, and that's good. Um, You may be given a badge at some point in your life, which authenticates the possession of power that you have in your particular role. I mentioned to you last week that I um, I worked for um, an American fast food restaurant in the city I grew up in, the south of England, when I was a teenager. 17 years of age, I joined, and um, I rapidly gained promotion to the title of lobby host. Uh, which basically meant that I had to take care of cleaning the floor where people ate. So it maybe wasn't as grand as it sounded, but I had some measure of power. I was given a little gold badge, which had my title on it just beneath my name. I think I still have that somewhere in my possession. And of course, with great power comes great responsibility, as Spider-Man said. There is something that all of us will experience moments in our lives when you have influence that's formal and in which you have some kind of authority over another. Probably more commonly, though, all of us will possess power in an informal sense. That is the the reality that in our relationships, the give and take of relationships, there's always a measure of, of power being exerted in one direction or another. There's the force of personality. Some of you will be gifted with a charisma and force of personality that will enable you to have influence with others. It can be down to your biology. If you're gifted with particularly good looks or with stature or strength or a deep voice or something that might distinguish you in such a way that you are able to exert power almost without even people realizing it. Your biology can have an influence on it. Your intelligence, if you are um, a very smart person, People will defer to you. If you have expertise in a specific area in your life, that will give you power in certain spheres. And we could go on examining this in all of our lives, but the, 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 the options are, are endless, really. I only want you to take away this, this understanding at this point. You will all possess power. And the reason why that matters profoundly if you're a follower of Christ is in understanding that any measure of power is gifted to you by God as a stewardship. In other words, a temporarily entrust, an entrustment to you that's temporary in the life you have here on earth, in which God is interested in what you do with it. All stewardship is something that we are accountable to God for. And that's true of all the power dynamics that we experience in life, the opportunities that we have, the gifts and talents that we possess. You remember... Now, towards the end of the Gospels, Matthew's Gospel, not long before Jesus is crucified, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, they've been learning under him for three years, and he's preparing them for his departure, the fact that he's going to go to be with the Father, and that then he's entrusting to them immense responsibility. He tells them a parable 
that's, that's designed to help them grasp the weight of what it is that they carried. It's the parable of the talents, in which he describes a master going away and leaving his wealth in the hands of his servants. To one servant, he gives five portions or five talents of his wealth. To another, he gives two, and to another, he gives one. And upon his return, he asks them what they've done with the portion of wealth that they possessed. The one who had five, he says, I've doubled it. There's now ten portions. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The story plays out similarly with a man with two talents or two portions. He says, I've doubled it. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then there's the the man who has just one portion. And he, he replies by saying that he buried it in the ground. And upon inquiry, he says it's because he was afraid. He says, I know you're a harsh master, reaping where you didn't sow. And I was, I was afraid, and I buried it in the ground. And the master condemns him and says that he is wicked for this act, that he could have at least invested it in the bank to gain interest, but instead he's done nothing with it. And it's a vivid parable that speaks to the heart of any follower of Jesus who begins to reckon with and wrestle with what it is that Christ has entrusted to you in life. Of course, it's a metaphor, the fact that he gives, the, gives these, uh, these servants wealth to deal with. It may literally be that God gives you wealth in life as, your, as a form of power, what you are called to, to use for his glory. But it can, it's, it's a metaphor. It can apply to other things. It can apply to your gifts and abilities. It can apply to the sovereign opportunities that Christ opens for you. Just thinking about the folk here gathered in this congregation this evening, this gathering together, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of potential opportunities that are going to unfold before us all in our lives. Each of them an opportunity for Christ. And it's thrilling to me to think about the reality that so many of you are a stage in life where you get to make the decisions about how you invest your time and the gifts that God has given you and what it means to live a life for him and how you offer back to him your, the power that he gives to you and as, a, as an entrustment with this short life you have on earth. Now this is the backdrop then to what I think is going on in this passage, but I want us to understand, of course, that with power is the potential for misuse and abuse. And I can think of numerous ways in which we can misuse or abuse the stewardship that God gives to us. I think, first of all, the potential for passivity in life, an abdication of, of, of what you should do but fail to do. This is obviously what's going on in the parable of the talents when the one talent man comes back and he says, I did nothing with this. And Christ is warning us that it's not good enough to say I was afraid and I did nothing. That there's a sense of tragedy in that story that you can pass through your life without realizing the dignity and the immense eternal weight that is laid upon our brief moments here on, on earth. And you can simply pass up those opportunities. You have gifts that are dormant, opportunities that you can use for Christ. Another possibility of misuse or abuse is self-indulgence and selfishness. That when God puts you in a position in which you 
possess something more than another. Leadership, wealth, gifts, talents. You can use those things merely to make your life better and to accumulate more comfort. I think the, um, the biblical image of this is King Solomon, David's son. David was a man of war. He carved out a kingdom. And then he passed the kingdom with all its wealth unto his son Solomon. Solomon is a conflicted character as I read him. That on the one hand, he wants to be wise and to live wisely as a king. But on the other hand, he seems to use all these opportunities for his own indulgence. His wealth to build a palace that's lavish and ornate and opulent. And he marries many wives. And part of that undoubtedly was just diplomacy with the surrounding nations. But some of it was sexual lust and desire that he is a powerful man in a position to be able to do this. And so he does it. If it's, not mis- if it's not passivity and abdication, or if it's not self-indulgence and comfort that we can seek with power. The third thing, and this is what we're really interested and in, focused on today, is the potential within life to misuse power by mistreating those around you. When we give way to harshness, to bullying, to oppression, to superiority. This is what Paul tackles head-on with these individuals that he addresses here, these masters in the congregation. And that's what I want us to dig into. We're more, I think we're a lot more sensitized to this in this day and age than, than perhaps at any other point in history. The fact that there are power dynamics in relationships and that those with more power can cause great harm to those who are under them or inferior to them in some way or other. We're more aware of oppression. We're more aware of bullying. We're more aware of these abuses and misuses of power. It doesn't seem to me, it seems to me that almost every week in in the newspapers, we hear another story breaking of either some prominent leader in business or politics or a celebrity who is mistreating and bullying their inferiors in a way that, um, that is slanderous and and heinous, and more and more a voice is given to the oppressed in these situations, isn't it? We're aware, because obviously many of you live, uh, work in, in cutthroat industries here in London, and I've spoken to numerous people who've talked about the change of culture that's taking place in companies, and has been for the last five to ten years or so. From a position where once upon a time when you were a junior, you just had to take whatever abuse came your way and work whatever hours you were told to work, regardless of your well-being and whether you were suffering or not. And of course, it's swung the other way now to a large extent in many industries where there is so much more of an awareness, isn't there, of the potential to suffer and the potential to be mistreated. And therefore, you can wave the flag and say, "I'm, I'm suffering and there will be people who will rally to your aid in, most, in many cases and where there is a new culture that's being set within companies. And so it's interesting to try and tackle what Paul's saying here in a situation in which it seems like culture's moving along in the right direction. And the question we can ask is, is this good and is this healthy? And part of me wants to say emphatically, without hesitation, yes, it's good. It is good that the, the powerless have a voice. And the oppressed have the opportunity to say that they are suffering and that there will be people come to their aid. On the other hand, though, we're also aware, aren't we, that, there is a, that, that power simply can swing in the other direction. 
that the oppressed can become the oppressors. And that this, is, this just indicates the fact that all of us are sinners at, at core. That the fastest way you can, you can vindictively destroy the career of another person is to make some accusation against them. And these days, it's almost impossible to shake these accusations off and to be, and to be cleared. And it seems to me, therefore, that even though we can see good trends in society, that the root issue, the fact that at heart we as humans have these tendencies to want to one-up over others and to cause suffering to others in, in order to better our own lives, that sin lurks in all of us, whether you're great, whether you're small, whether you're powerful, whether you're weak, it doesn't matter. At the root, the issue is, is this problem of sin in the heart. This is why I want us to return to what the Bible teaches on this and what the, go- the way the gospel remedies our hearts. How does Christ redeem power? How does he transform and turn it around? What does he want you to do with it? As you grow, in, look, most of you have decades ahead of you in which you're going to experience more opportunities than you're even aware of at this point in your life. What does Christ demand of you? What does he want of you as these opportunities open up before you? Now, let's look at this verse, particularly verse 9 I'm interested in here. The first thing that Paul tells them is something positive. He says, masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. This little phrase is much more radical and revolutionary than it seems when you first read it and your eyes sweep over it. What does he mean? He's saying that everything that I've just instructed of the slaves applies to you also. So when you reread those verses, when he's told these bond servants, he says, Obey earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, rendering service to God with a good heart, and so on. He's saying, everything that I've just instructed of the staff that work for you, you understand, of course, that the principles in there apply to you too. Now, he doesn't mean that that's to be read in an over-literal way, that if he's told the slaves to obey their masters, he's not saying, masters, now you must obey your slaves, because that would completely destroy the, the order that was existing in, in, in that society and culture at that time. But what he does mean is something like this. I'm commanding you to operate in the spirit in which I'm instructing them to operate in. The spirit of Christ-likeness. Now, it seems then that what we're looking at here is another scripture which shows us something the Bible often helps us to see, which is the kind of paradox of power. A paradox is a kind of seeming contradiction. And here's the paradox that you encounter in scripture. That on the one hand, the Bible never condemns power in and of itself, in any form, it's unless it's sinful, inherently sinful. But power isn't inherently sinful. Authority isn't inherently sinful. And God is the sovereign God who, who can raise you up and pull you down and put you in positions that you could not dream of for yourself. The Bible is aware of this and also supports it in many senses. But at the same time, the Scripture radically redefines the calling and responsibility that lays upon any of us when we possess power in life. 
that so much so that it turns it inside out and almost upside down. The example I'm thinking of here is in Mark chapter 10. It comes through in, in Mark 10:35, where there's this really amazing conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples. Remember, these men who followed Jesus are expecting him to, they fully anticipate that he's going to be the conquering king and Messiah who's going to rule from Jerusalem. And of course he does, but not in the way in which they expect. But anyway, that, at the time, that's what their anticipation was. And two of them, James and John, these brothers, they come to Jesus and they say to him, Lord, permit us to sit on your right hand and on your left hand when you come into your kingdom. They're imagining a kind of regal scene. Jesus is going to be sat on his throne. And they're saying, can one of us sit on one side and the other sit on the other side when you have your throne? And it's the most brash. I find this an unbelievable request with hindsight. You know, I'm sure these men felt many times the flush of embarrassment and shame when they remembered this conversation decades later. We've all been there, haven't we? But it's extraordinary that they were so open with their request. But what's also more amazing is the way Jesus responds to them. He doesn't condemn them for their interest in power because the Bible doesn't condemn power. What he does rather is he, he puts the challenge back on them and asks them whether they're able to drink the cup that he is going to drink. What is he talking about? He means the cup of suffering when he goes to the cross to die for our sins. He's saying, are you able to face the path of suffering? And why, does he, why does he put this challenge in front of James and John? And I think the answer is because within the kingdom of God, the only people who are able to be entrusted with great, greater influence and power and opportunity and use it for the glory of God are those who've walked the road of suffering. The suffering has a power when you learn the lessons that Christ wants you to learn in and through it of surrender to him and submission to him and the humility that comes with it to invert your heart. Jesus is interested in their hearts. He wants to do away with those self-seeking agendas that are so automatic to many of us of pride and of vainglory and of ambition. And he wants their hearts to be completely transformed and turned upside down so that they embody the humility, the sacrifice, the self-giving love that enables you to be raised up into higher positions and to have more opportunities and to have more wealth and to know that Christ can entrust you with these things because your heart is reoriented to him. And as he's dialoguing with them in this vein, he offers them this teaching which describes Christ's road to power. This is what he says to them. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, in other words, people who are outside the kingdom, those who are rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's talking about the vile abuses and the disgusting, um, oppressive practices that were, were at present within the empire at the time gladiatorial games and, and sexual conquest over slaves and putting slaves to death if you felt like it and all these kinds of things. That's what he's describing. They lord it over them. He says, it shall not be so among you. 
Whoever would be great among you, is that a desire in your heart? A longing to be or to do something great for Jesus? He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Slave. It's the same word that we encounter in Ephesians 6. That God is interested in promoting those who embody the heart posture and outward orientation of a slave. Offering your life for the good of others instead of for your own benefits and advancement. Now this seems to me to be why the world needs Christ's teaching now more than ever. As we're seeing this massive adjustment taking place and the critiques of power and all the possibilities of how power can be abused and wanting to give voice a voice to the oppressed and to the victim of, of injustice. And this is a good thing in many respects. As we're seeing this, the, the, the pendulum in many ways swing the other way, we have to ask, is, this, is it all healthy? And I think the answer is no, because so much of it is rooted in is not rooted in righteous concerns like we see in Scripture, but is simply rooted in the selfishness of our age and the narcissism of our age. I think one of the proofs of that is the fact that if you, if you want to gain a platform, especially online, quickly, one of the easiest ways to do that is to present your victimhood for everyone to see in the most vulnerable way possible. Now, I understand that that can be helpful in some conditions in order to give voice to others and help them to see that they're not alone in their suffering. But isn't there something slightly perverted and twisted in our age in which we wear these things out front in order to gain praise and admiration and attention from others? And it just shows you that the human heart is so complex and so wicked at its core. And it seems to me that what Christ wants to deal with is not so much the the structures and the institutions and those sorts of things as as much as he wants to deal with your heart. And this is why he's, he addresses people, us in this way. He says, the road to greatness in his kingdom is the road downwards into service and slavery of others, towards others. A more radical way, in other words, in which you, are, you become powerful in Christ's kingdom is the outward, the giving of your life for others. And just in case you imagine that this is a teaching he offers out there that he wasn't willing to embrace himself, he then says in the next verse, he says, even the Son of Man, which is his title, the way he spoke of himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus is saying that in my kingdom, my way is the way of the cross. And the way of greatness and the way of influence and the way of increasing opportunity and power in life is the way of the cross. I want you to go lower. So when, he, when Paul turns to these masters and says, do the same to them, he's inviting them on the pathway in which they walk in the way of the cross rather than the way of glory and pride and man-centered self-admiration. What has God given you in life? What wealth do you possess? Maybe you think, I don't have much right now. But you've got to learn these lessons now when you have little. Because once you have more, it won't be easier, it'll be harder. What gifts do you have? What, what talents that are latent in you? 
Do you understand that they're, they're there for service? Do the same to them, Paul says. And then he says this. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. So if the positive command is to take on the same spirit that I'm imploring the slaves to have of service, of self-giving, the negative is this one. Stop your threatening. Now, I want to ask you the question, why would these masters have been doing this to begin with? Why do people in positions of leadership so often abuse that and become harsh, become angry, and, and, and bully others around them? And I think there are a couple of ways to answer this. One is the straightforward way, and then there's the slightly more subtle way, and I'm interested in that especially. But listen, the straightforward answer to this question is this, because we're all sinners, and that when a person is put in position of leadership or influence or power, indwelling sin will soon find expression and it will quickly express itself often as anger for many. Now these, these masters who'd grown up in this particular context were privileged individuals, no doubt. And they were sinners, like you and I. They had to deal with the fact that they'd grown up in a culture that had taught them unhealthy ways of dealing with their inferiors, the people who were under their command. And they were, therefore, in coming to Christ, they were, they were, they were relearning habits of heart. But to be sanctified is that, isn't it? You, you're over here when you meet Jesus. You've been steeped in a certain culture, a way of thinking, a way of feeling, a way of acting. Christ wants to utterly transform you, and he is relentless in his pursuit of transformation in your life by every means possible, by the power of the truth, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by conviction in your conscience, by the experiences that you pass through in life. But ultimately, his end is to make you like him. And for these masters, that meant dealing with all the toxic ways in which they had learned how to execute their authority. And along with that, just the inner proclivity. All of us, to some degree, have a tendency to get angry over certain things. And often that anger is, is fueled by, by sin. And these masters had to deal with challenges. They had incompetence. They had laziness. They had the stresses of life in managing their property and making sure that they made enough money for the next year on their fields and so on and so forth. And, of course, all this brings out the potential for sin, doesn't it? And that's the straightforward answer. These men were sinners like you and me. Christ wants to deal with our sin. Stop your threatening, Paul says. I think the more subtle answer is this. The reason why people in positions of power so often express authority in harsh or even abusive and oppressive ways, become bullies, is more often than not rooted in fear. For these particular men, these masters, they were in a context in which it was well known that from time to time your slaves might murder you in a moment of rebellion. As they want to escape, the easiest thing is to kill the master and run away. And of course, it's a fact of life, isn't it, that the more people gain positions of power and authority in this world, the more that they become aware of their, their vulnerability. 
point to any dictator alive today or, or through history. And what are they? That they're frightened men surrounded by legions of protective, loyal followers, desperate to avoid um, getting a premature death. And of course, fear therefore stokes the abuse of power. It turns us, turns us into bullies. But of course, they also had to, to, some of these guys had to reckon with the fact that, they're, that, they, that the, the people who were slaves in their household had become Christians just as they become Christians. And now they were worshiping together on Sundays, and they were brothers and sisters in the congregation. And that then has a backlash in terms of how they relate to each other during the week. And so they were, they were afraid of losing their authority. What do people do when they're afraid and they're insecure in this kind of position? Well, they, they get harsh. I had a teacher like this at school who, you know, of all the teachers I had, I had many, obviously, like all of us, this particular teacher had the most shocking inability to control the classroom. And it was, it, I look back and just think it was utterly appalling, the chaos that would ensue from the minute these lessons started to the minute they ended. At the same time, she would hand out disciplines like detentions rapidly, like machine gun fire detentions all through the lesson. It was very rare to escape without, without a number of them being handed out in that particular lesson. Why did those two things go, go together? There was a harshness in the way that discipline was handed out, but also a complete inability to control the, these unruly teenagers. And the answer is, well, she was afraid. She, she couldn't control. There was no authority. And it gave birth to this kind of, this, this, this harshness, this this uh, impulsive desperation to control those around us. And it seems to me that this is, this, is, this is the nut of the issue so often for why so many become worse people the more opportunity, the more authority, the more power they gain in life. And this, friends, I'm saying this as a warning because this can happen to any one of you. The more wealth you gain, the more you'll be afraid of losing it. And so you'll need to invest in all the securities. You know, the bigger the house, the, more, the better the alarm system. The more jewelry you possess, the better the safe that you need to install in your house. And this is, this is the, the lesson, isn't it? Fear grows the more we, we grow powerful. The more success you have in life, with promotions, with advancement, whatever, path you end up on, the further you have to fall if it all goes sideways. And that brings a measure of fear, a measure of stress to the heart, doesn't it? The more you carve out a reputation for yourself in life, the more you can lose if that reputation is tarnished, and the more fearful you become about its fragility. And it seems to me that this is, this is why we as humans are so ready to, to uh, become oppressors of one another because fear, the fear of loss corrupts the powerful. It can corrupt any one of you. I think any of us could, could identify with that to some degree. And you can picture this like a, bit, a bit like a human pyramid. You ever seen those with acrobats? They stand on each other's shoulders. You have a number of people on the bottom layer and you can have multiple tiers in this human pyramid of standing on each other's shoulders. Now, who in that pyramid is experiencing the highest adrenaline spike and stress in the situation? The answer is it's the person at the top, right? Because they're vulnerable. 
They have a long way to fall if that thing crashes to the ground. And so you forgive them for the, uh, the, poss- the, the, the fact that they may shout harsh instructions and corrections to anyone beneath them who's doing the thing wrong. And it seems that that's a valid picture here for the way we can become more and more we can become worse version of, of ourselves the more the higher we climb in life, the more power we possess. Fear corrupts the human heart. Except when you encounter Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, who had immeasurable power so that the wind and the waves obey his authority. You know the story in Mark 4. They're caught up in a, in a storm. Christ commands the waves to be still and the disciples react in fear. It says, in terror, that the Lord Jesus is, they say, who is this who commands in the winds and the waves? He has power. But he's also tender and kind. So the scriptures say of him that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick, like a candle that looks like it's about to go out, says he will not put out. Speaking about the tenderness with which he deals with the human condition, with you and me, with the weak, with the needy, that Christ came alongside the oppressed. So that although he was powerful, he didn't act like the Caesars of his time. He didn't act like Herod murdering the babies and his paranoia. He didn't act like the Apostle Paul before he became a follower of Christ, hounding Christians and Afraid of what this new sect would become. Now Christ was tender. Why? Because he had no fear. Why did he have no fear? Well, because his goal was not to elevate himself, but rather to lower himself. How can you be afraid of loss when you've already given up your rights? How can you be afraid of losing your wealth when you've already become homeless as he was? How can you be afraid of losing your position, your authority, when he'd already stepped down from the throne room to take on human flesh and went lower, taking the form of a slave or a servant? How can you have fear of loss when you've already decided that I'm going to obey the Father and go to the cross to die for humanity? He had no fear of loss. What do your emotions say about you, friends? They're a diagnostic, that's what they are. Your emotions always tell a story about what's going on on the inside. They're worth digging into. And when you experience stress or you grow defensive against critique or criticism or whatever, or if you get angry with people around you, when these kinds of emotions begin to express themselves, what's it rooted in? Normally, it's rooted in fear. And the only remedy to this is the remedy Christ has offered us to go the way of the cross, to go lower, to relinquish our grip on the things that we think we need in this life, Success and achievement and adulation and reputation and wealth. To offer them back to God. At which point, God deals with the emotions. He straightens them out. He he deals with your heart. 
Masters, stop your threatening, Paul says. And then he finally brings them to a focus upon Jesus, a confrontation with him. And this is what he says. Listen to these words. He says, Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now listen. The more that you possess in this life, the more it has the power to corrupt you. The more power you possess, the more wealth you possess, the more gifts and talents and opportunities and reputation you possess, the more these things can have a toxic potential to corrupt your heart. If you attain wealth, many of you will. And you may say to yourself, I earned this. It creates a sense of entitlement and superiority. You climb the ladder. Or you make a success in some way. You get recognition for it. And you say, this is because I was better than the competition. Your heart will tell you that story. And therefore, in life, the more power we gain, the more it can feed the narratives which, which fuels pride in our heart. And that makes us into worse sinners than we were before we attained anything. You've all seen it. Maybe you've felt this in your own life. Maybe you've seen the person who you think, they were a pretty nice person, but then when they got that promotion, you didn't want to be friends with them anymore because it did something to them. It changed them. Now extrapolate that over a lifetime. What can happen to you as you're entrusted with more and more opportunity or wealth or your gifts are recognized or whatever else happens in your life? There's the potential that these things can corrupt you from the inside out, make you a much worse person. And it seems to me that the only remedy that can deal with this at the very core of our being, the right in the heart, is the confrontation with Christ, the need inside us to know Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's really bringing these masters to an awareness of here when he says he, he brings Christ into the equation. He says, knowing that he was both their master and yours. That word master is the key word here, isn't it? He's addressed them as masters. He says, ah, but Christ is both their master and yours. It's the Greek word which is normally translated Lord. He calls them lords or landlords, and he says, but you have a, a Lord, a greater Lord in heaven. Do you know that no one is a Christian unless they call Jesus Lord? It's prerequisite of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that you have taken that word, that name, and believed it in your heart that he is Lord of your life. You've offered yourself in humility and surrender. You say, Christ, have it all. I am yours. You are the Lord of everything. And to hear that word for these men who are used to hearing them themselves addressed in that way, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, jolts them awake. There's one who's so much greater than you. He makes your authority look puny and pathetic. And if you're a follower of Christ, you've offered him everything. Remember that. That's what he's saying to these men. Jesus calls you to surrender to his lordship. And as you surrender to his lordship, the things of this world which could corrupt you, they lose their power. 
because they're not yours. They're his. And he's in charge of your life. And he gives and he takes away. He raises you up and he puts you down. He, this is Christ's lordship in your life. So he put you where you are. Paul also is calling them to a recognition that if this is true, the people around you are your brothers and sisters within the family of God. That's what he says, isn't it? Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. In other words, you're part of the same family, your brothers and sisters. Of course, what, what effect would this have upon these people who'd been raised to believe that they were more important than others? To now remember, you know, the people you worship alongside on Sundays, they're your family, they're your brothers and sisters. What does that do? Well, one thing is it humbles you. I know because I have two brothers that no matter how much success or achievement any of us have in life, our job, our role as brothers is to pull each other down. You know, we'll never defer to each other or respect each other as brothers because it, we, 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 know, we know each other better than we know ourselves in one sense. Like, there's nothing we can do to impress each other. That's be- the beauty of being, having siblings, isn't it? They humble you constantly. And the more you attain in life, the meaner they get, generally speaking. And so Paul's, he's, he's wanting these, these masters to be humble, recognize, look, these are your siblings. It pulls you down, doesn't it? Just burst the bubble, the inflated sense of self, the beliefs that we can have about our own greatness and brilliance. You're just, a, you're just a sibling. You're just a kid in the family of God. But it also elevates the people around you, doesn't it? And this is the effect that I think Paul's teaching would consistently have had within the congregation. It's not just that it brings you down, but it elevates everyone else around you. You see, they'd grown up hearing about the teachings, as I mentioned last week, of Aristotle, who believed that your slaves were nothing better than your farm animals. They were like tools that you could put to work on the farm. And here's Paul saying, no, no, no. You understand that these are co-heirs with you in Christ, adopted into the family of God. This would utterly and absolutely reconfigure the mind and heart that these individuals had towards others. I love this amazing and famous passage that comes in one of C.S. Lewis's essays. If you haven't read it, you must read this essay. It's called The Weight of Glory, where he's wrestling with the fact of eternity and way, the way eternity influences our present moment. And the way he brings this essay to a close is he writes these famous words. He says, he's talking about our relationship with other humans. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to, which I could substitute for the weakest person, the person with the least power, may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. final note in this line as he speaks about Christ and wants these, these individuals to have a confrontation with Christ that will change their hearts. He says of Christ that there is no partiality with him. This takes us right to the heart of the gospel that we believe as Christians. Partiality is a bad thing in a judge. A judge who is partial is a judge who has a tendency to make prejudgments based on things like status or wealth or accent or skin color or whatever it is that might bias a judge in their verdict. But an impartial judge is one who can strip away all of those things and see the person and their actions for what they are. An impartial judge is one who can deal fairly with a heroin addict who's being charged and called to account before the court for something. And in the same way, an ex-president who you know, just theoretically might be charged of various crimes and be called before the courts. And an impartial judge is one who has the ability to see through these externals. And the gospel that we believe as Christians is that there are no externals that you bring before Jesus. That when you come to Christ, all your attainments in this world are as nothing before him. So that to believe in Jesus and to to trust him that he would save you is not just to repent of your sin that we have to jettison and turn away from in order that we can receive his righteousness we also have to repent of our righteousness. And all the reasons for pride in ourselves, your successes and your attainments, anything that might cause you to imagine that you have more standing before him when you meet him face to face. The Bible says it's not just your sin you repent of, you repent of all of that as well, your merit. And that's what Paul's saying to these men as they have this confrontation with Christ. He's saying, you're going to meet the impartial judge. You understand, don't you, that you don't get to bring your power into the throne room. You don't get to bring your wealth. You don't get to bring your attainments and your gifts and your successes and your achievements in this life. None of it gives you status before Christ. That your only hope is his mercy. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? That we stand before Christ naked, as it were, stripped of all our achievements, and also with our sin taken off us, so that we can receive his wealth, his achievements, his grace, his forgiveness, his glory even. There is nothing like the gospel to remedy our hearts. And so... I want to close with an image 
to help you just let this marinate in your hearts as you leave. We have a vision in Revelation chapter 4 as we're peering into the throne room of heaven. We're seeing the worship that's taking place around Jesus. And the Apostle John, as he's glimpsing these eternal realities, he describes these creatures, the living creatures who are worshiping Jesus, and he describes the elders who are gathered around the throne worshiping him. And he says that these 24 elders, they fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. These elders, they possess crowns. Many of you will possess crowns in this life. And they'll be given to you by God temporarily as a stewardship in this life. What are you to do with that power, with that opportunity, with those crowns? Well, the elders, what do they do? They cast them before Jesus. And they say, worthy are you. My prayer for you, friends, is may God increase the power that he gives you to do his will in this life. Open doors of opportunity. Allow your gifts to find full expression. May he increase your power in this life to do his will. But may he decrease your pride. May you see yourself like these elders do, gathered around the throne, as a worshiper before you're anything else. Amen. Amen. We're going to take communion. This is a holy moment, friends. Because we are all brothers and sisters around the table. When you eat the bread and you drink the wine, you're confessing the gospel I was just explaining to you then. The gospel that Christ has died for you. So that your sin doesn't count anymore. It's not carried, it's not accounted to you anymore. But neither is your righteousness and your merit. Only Christ's achievements count when we gather around the table. So, brothers and sisters, if you, your prayer is, God, use me for your glory, but Lord, let my heart be remedied by a vision of Christ. And take this bread and take this wine and turn this into prayer. God, humble me before you. I would never become a monster, but that I will become more and more like the Christ who I follow. Let's eat, let's drink. If you're not a Christian, let this pass you by. There's no embarrassment in that whatsoever. But let's take a moment to respond to God personally as we worship. Amen.